week six of our sermon series on the life of Joseph. Um, you know, the, the one with the coloured coat, coat of many colours. If, if, if it had been Josephine, I think uh, she would have wore something like Julie's wearing this morning, a skirt of many colours. Um, but we're going to turn to Genesis 41. Um, and we've just got three more messages concerning this amazing Old Testament Bible character. Some of you will say, Amen. I've got enough of them already. Well, there's three more messages uh, that'll take us to the end of the month. And then, of course, we'll start to, start to focus our thoughts and our minds uh, around Advent as we get into December and, and, of course, Christmas themes. Hard to imagine that we're almost there uh, already. And, of course, with Halloween over this past uh, week, uh, the shops now were just all set as if they hadn't already been set for, for Christmas. Well, this morning we're going to uh, see how Joseph and how each of us, how you and I, uh, can glorify God in every circumstance in life. And, uh, and then tonight, if you're able to come out tonight, uh, I plan to start a new teaching series from the New Testament uh, based around Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, and in particular, what has become known as the Beatitudes. So if you're able to come out tonight, um, we will be kicking off that series tonight. Probably the name Jim Braddock will probably not be known to you unless you happen to have seen the 2005 movie uh, Cinderella Man uh, starring Russell Crowe which retold his life story. Jim Braddock was once a, a rising star in the amateur boxing world but he shattered his right hand in a punch just a couple of months before the stock market crashed in September the 3rd, 1929. And like many other people of that day and that time, he lost everything. And with his hand injured uh, and the boxing world losing interest in him, he became really the forgotten man of boxing. And for the next five years, Jim Braddock uh, scrounged for jobs, one job after another, trying his best to provide for his family. Uh, and it was a time of, of humiliation for him a time of pain, a time of loss, but he handled those personal challenges with great integrity. And then in 1934, something happened that changed everything for Jim Braddock. He received a surprise invitation back into the boxing ring uh, as an underdog, uh, and he won that fight, and then in turn he, he, he uh, won other fights, until on the 13th of June, 1935, Jim Braddock stepped into the ring with, uh, at Madison Square Garden in New York. Uh, stepped into the ring as a 10 to 1 underdog to face Max Baer, who at that time was the heavyweight champion of the world. And 15 brutal rounds later, James J. Braddock, now dubbed the Cinderella Man for his rise from the pit to the pinnacle, was declared the winner by a unanimous vote of the judges. And his story is a classic drama of how one person can overcome all the odds that are against them with integrity and with humility and yet with tenacity. And to put it biblically, James 1 and 12 says, blessed is the man, and we'll be looking tonight at what it means to be blessed, but blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he stood the test, he will receive the crown of life which God has promised to those who love him. And the Bible, of course, is full uh, of people and accounts of those who remain steadfast under trial. 
because they were undeniably convinced that God had a plan and a purpose for everything concerning them, the good, the bad, and the ugly. And over the past weeks, as we've journeyed with Joseph, we've seen how his integrity of character and his awareness that God was with him kept him godly and true in spite of how he was treated and even how he was mistreated. The key to his faithfulness, despite every reason uh, not to trust, was that he was convinced, as we've just sang this morning, and as we often sing, that God was sovereign over everything that happened in his life. There is strength within the sorrow. There is beauty in our tears. And you meet us in our mourning with a love that casts out fear. You're working in our waiting. You're sanctifying us when beyond our understanding... You're teaching us to trust that your plans are still to prosper. You have not forgotten us. You're with us in the fire and the flood. You're faithful forever. You're perfect in love. Say it with me. You are sovereign over us. So let's open our Bibles then to uh, chapter Genesis chapter 41. If you've, uh, if you've got, it there, got your Bibles there. Uh, we're not going to read the whole chapter, just, just portions. But we find that Joseph is now sitting in an Egyptian jail. And he has to be thinking there can't be any more short straws left. Because he's got, a, he's got the world's large, largest collection of them. He's been drawing the short straw, it seems like, all his life. You'll recall how he was born into a dysfunctional family. Uh, how his brothers, wanting to get rid of him age 17, sold him into slavery. And he did a great job as a slave and let his boss, his boss let him run the, the show in the jail uh, or in, in, in the palace. But the boss's wife kept making passes at him. He kept refusing her because he feared God. So she finally accused him of, uh, of attempting to rape her or assault her. And that got him thrown into jail. Where once again, even in the jail, he rises to the top and basically runs the prison. And one day Pharaoh gets upset with his chief butler and his baker and he throws them into the same prison as Joseph and they have some dreams which he interprets and his interpretation comes to pass and that the baker is put to death and the butler is set free and Joseph asks the butler, uh, we looked at that the last time, he asked the butler to try and pull some strings to get him out of jail but the butler forgot all about Joseph. Well let's, uh, let's read in chapter uh, 41 of Genesis, what happens next? When two full years had passed, Pharaoh had a dream. He was standing by the Nile when out of the river came up seven cows, sleek and fat, and they grazed among the reeds, and after them seven other cows, ugly and gaunt, came out of the Nile and stood beside those on the riverbank. And the cows that were ugly and gaunt ate up the seven sleek, fat cows. And then Pharaoh woke up. He fell asleep again, had a second dream. Seven heads of grain, healthy and good, were growing in a single stalk. After them, seven other heads of grain sprouted, thin and scorched by the east wind. And the thin heads of grain swallowed up the seven healthy, full heads. And then Pharaoh woke up. It had been a dream. And in the morning, his mind was troubled. So he sent for all the magicians and wise men of Egypt. Pharaoh told them his dreams, but no one could interpret them for him. And then the chief cupbearer, that he had just released from jail, said to Pharaoh, today I'm reminded of my shortcomings. And he mentions Joseph and how Joseph interpreted dreams in the prison. So verse 14, Pharaoh sent for Joseph 
and he was quickly brought from the dungeon. When he had shaved and changed his clothes, he came before Pharaoh. Pharaoh said to Joseph, I had a dream, but no one can interpret it. But I have heard it said of you that when you hear a dream, you can interpret it. I can't do it, Joseph replied to Pharaoh, but God will give Pharaoh the answer he desires. And then Pharaoh said to Joseph, and he recounts the two dreams. Go down to the bottom of verse 24. I told the magicians, but none of them could explain it to me. And then Joseph said to Pharaoh, the dreams of Pharaoh are one and the same. God has revealed to Pharaoh what he's about to do. The seven cows are seven years and the seven good heads of grain are seven years. It's one and the same dream. The seven lean ugly cows came up afterwards uh, are seven years and so are seven worthless heads of grain scorched by the east wind. There are seven years of famine. It's just as I said to Pharaoh, God has shown Pharaoh what he is about to do. Seven years of great abundance are coming throughout the land of Egypt but seven years of famine will follow them. Then uh, all the abundance of Egypt will be forgotten and the famine will ravage the land. The abundance of the land will not be remembered because the famine that follows it will be so severe. And the reason the dream was given to Pharaoh in two forms is that the matter has been firmly decided by God and God will do it soon. Verse 33, now let Pharaoh look for a discerning uh, and wise man and put him in charge of the land of Egypt. And, and he, he tells Pharaoh what, what this wise man should do. In verse 37, the plan seemed good to Pharaoh to all his officials, so Pharaoh asked him, can we find anyone like this man in whom is the spirit of God? And of course, you know what happens. Verse 41, Pharaoh said to Joseph, I hereby put you in charge of the whole land of Egypt. Then Pharaoh got out his signet ring from his finger and put it on Joseph's finger. He dressed him in robes of fine linen. He put a gold chain around his neck. He let him ride in a chariot as his second in command. And men shouted before him, make way. And thus he put him in charge of the whole land of Egypt. And then it tells us in verse 46, Joseph was 30 years old when he entered the service of the Pharaoh, the king of Egypt. And Joseph went out from Pharaoh's presence, traveled throughout Egypt. During the seven years of abundance, the land produced plentifully. And Joseph collected all the food produced in those seven years of abundance in Egypt and stored it in the cities. And each city he put the food grown in the fields surrounding it. And Joseph stored up huge quantities of grain like the sand of the sea. It was so much that he stopped keeping records because it was beyond measure. And then, of course, the famine comes. And verse 56 says, when the famine had spread over the whole country, Joseph opened the storehouses and sold grains to the Egyptians, for the famine was severe throughout Egypt. And all the countries came to Egypt to buy grain from Joseph, because the famine was severe in all the world. And we end the reading there. May God bless that public reading of his word. So it would be an understatement uh, to say and for me to tell you that our world today seems like it's reeling out of control. Iran is developing nuclear weapons. North Korea already has them. The situations in Syria and Iraq continue to deteriorate. The Middle East is a power keg uh, waiting to explode. People are being massacred by deranged gunmen in, in, in the United States time and time again. And knife crime is on the rise in the United Kingdom. Uh, and, and governments are passing laws that fly in the face of God's moral law. And greed... And the love of money is causing impoverished peoples in third world countries looking for a better world. To be callously allowed uh, to go into the back of container lorries and to die. Evangelist Billy Graham stated the obvious many years ago when he said, The further we get from God, 
the more the world spirals out of control. And I think all of us here this morning would agree with that. Surely Jesus must be coming back soon. But in the meantime, in these dark days, Genesis 41 that we've just read portions from is a wonderful encouragement to us. Because it reminds us that God not only has his hands on our own individual lives, he has the whole world in his hands. And everything remains under his control. Years ago we used to sing a little chorus that said, God is still on the throne. Anyone sing that chorus? And he will remember his own. Though trials may press us and burdens distress us, he never will leave us alone. God is still on the throne. His promise is true. He will not forget you. For God is still on the throne. If I was to ask you this morning, or indeed if you were to, if you were to ask me, what's your favourite attribute, your favourite characteristic of God? What would it be? That would be an almost impossible question to answer because we know that since God is ultimate perfection, he has no bad attributes. They're all good. He is perfect love. He is perfect justice. He is perfect wisdom, perfect holiness, and so on. So how can anyone possibly choose from among the attributes of God, there's, there's 17 of them, but there's more there on the screen. These are the moments, you know, there, there are moments when we, when we cling to God's mercy, like a drowning person would cling to a life preserver. There are other times we're overwhelmed with the sense of God's majesty, and still other times God's holiness exposes our sin and leads us to repentance, and often we swim in the ocean of God's love. I'll tell you the truth that my faith in difficult times rests uh, upon the solid rock truth of the sovereignty of God. That means that God's in charge of all things at all times and in every situation. And no Bible uh, doctrine or teaching is more obvious than the sovereignty of God because you can find it on nearly every page of Scripture. Here's a few examples. Job 23 and 13. But he stands alone. And who can oppose him? He, that is God, does whatever he pleases. Job 42 and 2. I know that you can do all things, O God. No plan of yours can be thwarted. Psalm 115 verse 3. God is in heaven. He does whatever pleases him. That's pretty clear, isn't it? The Lord of the universe does whatever he pleases. And you know, whenever I read that verse, I can almost hear God saying from heaven, Well, Gordon, you got any questions? <laughs> Romans 11 of course 33 through 36 oh the depth of the riches of the wisdom and the knowledge of God how unsearchable his judgments and his paths beyond tracing out who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counsellor who has ever given to God that God should repay him for from him and through him and to him are all things to him be the glory forever Amen and this wonderful doxology comes at the end of Paul's declaration that the gospel is God's answer to man's sin. No one gives God advice. No one can trace his ways. And everything is from him. And everything is through him. And everything is to him. And he alone gets the glory. You know, the process of discipleship, and it's been a blessing to me to know that um, our elders here uh, have just started a discipleship class for but it was some men who, who need some encouragement in, in the word and encouragement in living as a disciple of Jesus Christ just started this past week and will be ongoing. But the process of discipleship is about learning to give God the center stage of our lives. 
In other words, glorifying him. When we come to Genesis chapter 41, Joseph's been in jail for two years and it seems like he's come to a dead end. So he sits and he waits and he wonders if he'll ever get out of jail. It seems like his whole life is two steps forward and three steps back. And I'm sure he's asked himself, why is all this happening to me? And we all come to moments like that, don't we, sooner or later, because a lot of what goes on around us and sometimes to us seems to make little sense. How is it that one person gets cancer and dies while someone else gets cancer and and lives? And yet another person gets the same cancer, goes through chemotherapy and, and survives. Why is it one family is hit with seemingly endless series of trials while another one seems to have no problems or no trouble at all. Why did the car accident leave one man crippled but the man who was sitting next to him walked away unscathed? And the list could go on, couldn't it? And most of the time we can't see any clear answers to those sort of questions or dilemmas. And every day, every day God is doing perhaps 10,000 different things in our lives but we'll only be dimly aware of perhaps one or two or three of those things at any given time. The numbers are arbitrary, but the point is absolutely right. We barely get a glimmer of all that God is doing in us and through us and to us and for us. We're like little kids who are peeping through the keyhole of a door. And at best we see a little sliver of of what lies on the other side of the door. And we often mistake that for the whole spectrum of reality. But God knows what he's doing even when we don't. And he's never clueless even when we don't have a clue. And Joseph's about to discover that his two years in prison are not wasted. They were preparing him for a future that only God could see. And if any chapter reveals the sovereignty of God, it's got to be this one. First of all, it was God in his sovereignty who gave Pharaoh two of the most vivid dreams he'd ever had in his entire life. And and though Pharaoh was the most powerful man on the earth, he was helpless to understand his own dreams. Even a thousand years of pagan religion couldn't produce what the king wanted to know because his own magicians couldn't figure it out. They quoted all the traditions and all the writings of the sages. They deciphered hieroglyphics. They referred to historical precedents and all of that sort of stuff, but they didn't have a clue. These were the wise men in Pharaoh's court, highly educated, intellectually capable advisors. And you have to admire their honesty. They could have come up with something, but they didn't. They candidly admit, we don't know what your dream means. Wouldn't you wish that uh, some of the so-called wise people of our day would admit that they they don't have all the answers? Ours is a day, it seems... When to acknowledge being without an answer is looked on as being stupid. But real stupidity is just to blether on and on when you really don't know what's going on. Spouse opinions that have not been carefully thought out or tested. We need more wise men like Joseph who will ultimately turn to God for real answers and admit that in spite of their gifts, they're still dependent on the sovereign God. Now, as an aside, let me just say that God does not generally speak through dreams in our day. Now, listen to me. He doesn't generally speak through dreams in our day. In Joseph's time, they didn't have the scripture. They didn't have the Bible, such as we have. They didn't have the complete revelation of God's word like we do. 
In our day, God speaks through his word alone. Although there is some testimony today of God speaking through dreams and places which are closed to his word and closed to the gospel uh, where his word is not readily available. But generally, God speaks through his word. Another evidence of God's sovereignty is that it was God who reminded the cupbearer about Joseph. A day came when something happened that jogged this man's memory and convicted him of what he was to acknowledge was his. In verse 9, he talked about his shortcomings. And suddenly, and without warning, Joseph is hurriedly brought out of the dungeon, but he doesn't face Pharaoh until he'd shaved and changed his clothes. Now, we probably just glanced over that. Pharaoh sent for Joseph, and he quickly was brought from the dungeon. When he had shaved and changed his clothes, he came before Pharaoh. What was that all about? What was that all about? This wasn't just cleaning up, which surely he needed after a couple of years in prison. This wasn't a, a cultural concession because to the Hebrews, a beard was a mark of dignity, but actually offended Egyptians. It was an offensive thing to Egyptians. So Joseph took this time to shave himself so as not to unnecessarily offend the king of Egypt. He goes out of his way to make sure that the message was not rejected because the messenger was rejected. And you know, we need to be sensitive to that too in our day because sometimes it's not our message that's been rejected by a lost world. It's us by the way that we behave and the way we act and the way we speak. This coincidence in the very commas is actually a remarkable link in the chain of God's providence. If he had remembered Joseph earlier, the cupbearer, Joseph might have been set free earlier but he may not have been anywhere near the palace when the king had his dreams. As far as Joseph was concerned, he was just being faithful to God when he interpreted those dreams two years earlier. But now, at just the right moment, God jogged the cupbearer's memory and he's brought to Pharaoh exactly when Pharaoh had been brought to a place of desperation. On any other day, this powerful ruler wouldn't have listened to anything a prisoner had to say to him. But on this day, he had no choice. He was desperate for answers and he was willing to listen to anyone who could give him the answers. And you know, we would do well ourselves to, to remember that God operates his universe that he created, that he set in motion with split-second timing. From the orbit of the tiny parts of every atom to the precise movements of galaxies, God has everything on a timetable. And when we want to see something happen, generally, you know, we want it now. We want it yesterday. But we need to learn that God orders events, including the timing of those events, so that all of life runs to his perfect timetable. The when of his will is as important as the what and the how. God's providence rarely works out like a a machine that dispenses snacks, you know, where you drop in your, your euro, you push the numbers, out comes a bar of chocolate or a can of Coke. Joseph had all, pushed all the right buttons in prison, asked the butler to remember him to Pharaoh, but nothing had come of it for two years. The cupbearer had forgotten all about it, and now we see that even man's sinful forgetting has been under the very providence of God. 
And I, I would imagine that there isn't a Christian man or woman here this morning who hasn't had to endure God's delays in one way or another. But God's delays are not necessarily God's denials. And maybe you're in a circumstance now, there's maybe loneliness or there's unemployment or there's a debt that's taken a long time to clear. There's closed doors that won't open. There's a, a relationship that you're not sure of or, or, or many things uh, many other seeming delays in God coming through. Well, remember, all Joseph could see was prison walls for two years. But God could see Pharaoh's palace and right into his unconscious mind over which the king had no control. And God could have sent those two dreams to Pharaoh at any time, but he waited two years. And I want you to notice he didn't give Joseph any reason for the delay. God saw fit not to disclose the reason for the delay to him. So Joseph had to walk by faith as he waited on God. And, 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 and we would be well served if we did the same. Only God can see the big picture of things from the beginning to the end. Because to us it seems like life is unscripted. And we don't possess even the smallest part of all the facts. We hardly know our own hearts we don't know our real needs or what's best for us. And we know nothing about the future, but God knows it all. And so we're to wait patiently on God in these times of not knowing, trusting our loving Savior who has never wronged us in anything that he's done and never will. And, 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 and he'll continue to be sovereign over our lives. Well, again, in, in chapter 41, in his sovereignty, God then gave Joseph the interpretation of these dreams. As much as Joseph desired to be released from his captivity, he never brought that subject up to Pharaoh because his first concern was not with his own comfort, but with God's glory. This was the first conversation these two men had and for the next 30 to 40 years, they were going to talk together almost every day in a growing relationship of trust and affection for each other as they ruled the greatest nation on earth at that time. And isn't it incredible to think that the first word Joseph spoke to Pharaoh was, no. He said, no. I don't have any ability in myself to interpret dreams. I can't. But God can. What a testimony. What a bold testimony. The first and greatest thing he wanted Pharaoh to know was that he was a servant of the living God. Joseph had lost his fear of man after experiencing everything that his brothers and the slave traders and Potiphar's wife had done to him. So he was taking the initiative and establishing the foundation of his relationship and friendship with Pharaoh. And he's committed to living his life with integrity by choosing to publicly glorify and lift up God, regardless of the, what the outcome of this meeting might be. Picture, it's an amazing thing. An unknown Hebrew slave stands before the mightiest man in the world. Who but God could have brought this about? 24 hours earlier, no one could have foreseen it, least of all Joseph himself. And he knew that if he took the credit, he would be taking what belonged to God. Even after all he'd been through, he isn't bitter. And he's actively seeking ways to bring glory and honor to God. He's not upset about the delays and the problems he's had to face as a slave and as a prisoner. He immediately sees the providence of God at work and he's quick to use this opportunity to magnify and to glorify his God. For Joseph, everything is about God. Joseph doesn't matter. 
Joseph's battles don't matter. Even Pharaoh doesn't matter. All that matters is God and his glory. We know, don't we, that life can be hard. Even unfair, seemingly unfair at times. But maybe some of us need to be reminded that as Christians, we've signed up to live a life that honours God. To live with integrity. And to hold on to God with the assurance that he's holding on to us. Some of us might have lost heart and given up already if we didn't believe that God was with us. So in whatever situation we find ourselves in, more important than, than the prayer, Lord, deliver us from this circumstance, is the prayer, Lord, use me in this circumstance. Use me, Lord, for your glory. Joseph has had every bad turn of providence that he could have possibly experienced in the past 12 years. And now he's given the opportunity to teach old Pharaoh about divine providence and he's fully equipped for the task. He tells Pharaoh not once, but twice. In verses 25 and 28, God has shown Pharaoh what he is about to do. And so this man who that morning was in a cell in an Egyptian prison was that afternoon preparing Pharaoh for a change in his federal agricultural policy. Amazing. But more than that, Joseph explains that his seven years, this seven-year a famine is not going to happen in a hundred years' time or even when Pharaoh's an old man. Joseph has given Pharaoh a theological lesson on the sovereignty of God in that God doesn't just know the future or reveal the future, but God controls the future. And for seven years, God has ordained material blessings for the eastern Mediterranean basin. But then for the following seven years, he's ordained a time of famine and a time of testing. See the comfort in this uh, for the unknown, unscripted future of our own lives? Like you don't know what's going to happen this afternoon, tomorrow, next week, next month, next year uh, in the will of God. It's clear that it was God in his sovereignty who gave Joseph the plan of preparation. Here he is, like an Old Testament John Wayne, <laughs> coming to the rescue of the beleaguered wagon train. Pharaoh, the helpless helpless. Uh, King of Egypt has been humbled by the dreams that neither he nor any one of his wise men could interpret. And now he's been further humbled by the advice of a Hebrew slave who spent several years in his own prison. I want you to notice the distinction between Joseph's brothers back in chapter 37 where we began and the pagan Pharaoh. When Joseph's brothers had heard God's revelation through his dreams, they responded by throwing him into a pit. But when the pagan Pharaoh needed an accurate exposition of his dreams, he brought Joseph up out of the pit, out of the prison, and heeded every word that he said. And so having explained the dream and its meaning, Joseph now goes on to suggest that Pharaoh find, as he says in verse 33, a discerning, wise man to administer the economic affairs of the nation during the seven good years, so that one-fifth of the grain is stored in granaries in all the cities in Egypt. Pharaoh needed a man who was gifted in administration, who was loyal and who was honest in his dealings. So he was going to have to choose carefully. Now, I don't think Joseph was angling for a job. I don't think it even crossed his mind. I think he was oblivious to that possible option. At this moment, he had, he, he had, he had sprung into his instinctive response to the sovereign revelation of God. God has shown me, he said, and shown us that what he's going to do. So we need to get cracking. And here's what needs to be done. This and this and this and this. And it doesn't occur to him actually 
that he's the man to organize this international mission of mercy that's going to have to happen. Not surprisingly, Pharaoh recognized that Joseph was the right man he needed for the job. And the interesting thing is that although he was a pagan ruler, an unbeliever if you like, he recognized the work of God's spirit when he saw it. Our world today, you know, is enamored with appearance and with the cult of personality. But what Egypt needed was not a personality, but a person of honesty and integrity and character. Someone who is willing to take full responsibility. And in our pass-the-buck sort of culture, those are rare qualities indeed. But the bottom line is that Joseph was telling Pharaoh to get ready for the future. And folks, isn't that a message that our world desperately needs today. God didn't just give this dream once but twice to show that he meant business and that he means it now. And when God says something, we need to pay attention right away. But sadly, this is a day when rather than letting God's word judge us, with our puny little minds, we've become the judges of God's word in many ways. That's why there's so much confusion even in the evangelical church over whether the Bible is true or not. And how far we should go in obeying it. We've lost our way. How many times has God warned our lost world of his coming judgment? Hundreds of times. How many times has God reminds us that this world is not our home? Countless times. Are we ready for the famine of God's word that's quickly coming? And maybe is already here. Are we ready to meet God? Are we listening? Are we paying attention? Are we being obedient? Are we preparing our children? In our postmodern world, does it really matter if our children have good education or athletic ability or even know how to make a good living? Because while those things are important, yes, of course they're important, what really matters, listen, what really matters is that they know God and they know his eternal word. And Pharaoh clearly heeded this warning and so he made Joseph the second most powerful man in the world. Not bad for a Hebrew slave, eh? Thirteen years earlier, he was tending the flocks with his brothers and now still only 30 he's the prime minister of Egypt and Pharaoh gave Joseph his signet ring it was like having the king's credit card he gave him linen clothing a sign of high honour he gave him a gold chain another sign of royal authority he gave him a, a chariot for transportation so he could go wherever he wanted to go he had his own limo he had the soldiers call out bow down when Joseph passed by and how much of all this did Joseph see in advance not a bit not a bit never crossed his mind and how much of it happened by chance none of it all happened exactly as God had planned it to happen Joseph still even then couldn't see the big picture of what God was intending because as far as he knew he was simply doing God's will as the prime minister of Egypt nothing more nothing less But God had bigger plans in mind and it's humbling to realize that while God cares for us as individuals, he often has a bigger purpose for what he gives to us and the places he puts us in. For example, spiritual gifts. All of God's children have spiritual gifts. Have you discovered yours? Spiritual gifts are not uh, given to us so we can squander them on ourselves. so we can help build up each other in the church material wealth is given to us not that we can accumulate a lot of stuff 
So much that we can be channels of blessing to God's people and to those who need a little extra hand. And our time is not given to us so we can use it to leisurely pamper ourselves as much as it's given to us to serve God. Wonder, especially for some of you younger folks, and you can define what younger means this morning, would you be willing to surrender maybe your 20s, your 30s for the sake of serving God in some way? Maybe it's serving here in Monaghan Elam in one of the ministries of the church. Maybe it could be serving through the church in the community. Or it may be even a calling into full-time ministry, either here or maybe on the mission field. You never know what God's preparing you for. And the only guarantee is this. If you place yourself in God's hands at his disposal, God won't let you down. When I became a Christian, 12th of July, 1971, I've told you that before. Did I know what God was going to do in my life then? No. I was going to end up in ministry in Ireland and then end up in ministry in Canada and then end up in ministry in Monaghan. I hadn't a clue. I still don't have a clue. I'm just trusting God, trying to be obedient to him day by day and allowing God to lead. And, and he always does. God won't, won't let us down, that's for sure. One final thing. Even though Joseph was living in Egypt, and even though he married, I don't know if we read that portion, he married an Egyptian woman who was the daughter of a pagan priest, Joseph gave his two sons names that would remind them forever of their true heritage, their godly heritage. It tells us that though he may have appeared to be an Egyptian on the outside, on the inside he still worshipped the God of his fathers, Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. He named his firstborn son Manasseh, which has a meaning no one could mistake. Verse 51, God has made me to forget all my trouble and all my father's household. Now he didn't mean that he'd forgotten his family because as we'll see later in the story next week in fact they'll, they'll always remain close to his heart but it means that God had enabled him to forget the pain of the rejection and betrayal by his brothers and recently I, I ran across this quote that said we can, we can move on from things we will never get over we can move on from things we will never get over. I'll never get over the sudden death of my wife. So, move on. It's of God that David was talking about, not just to forgive sin, but to help us day by day in life. And get over, or move on from things we'll never get over. Uh, sometimes people glibly say, you know, when we come into a circumstance, oh, just, just get over it. How do you get over hatred and envy and conspiracy and attempted murder and betrayal like Joseph endured? You don't ever really get over things like that. They mark you for life. Some things happen to us, and some of you know this well. Some things happen to us that leave scars on the soul that time does not erase. But Joseph would never forget what his brothers had done. He would eventually, as we'll see, end up forgiving them sign of spiritual maturity and it glorifies God to say God has made me to forget the pain of my past oh I wonder is there someone here this morning and you need to you need to pray that you need to acknowledge that ask God to help you in that Joseph called the second child Ephraim 
which means made fruitful. The land of my suffering in that context, in that verse, refers to all that he had suffered in Egypt. Yet it was in that place where he had suffered so much that he's now experiencing the untold blessings of God. Notice how even the order of these names is important. Manasseh must come before Ephraim. It's only when we're set free from bitterness that we can experience God's blessing. Because it's only when we truly believe in the sovereign God that we can let go and we can move on and trust him. First law of spiritual progress states, I can't go back. I can't stay here. I must go forward. There's no going back for Joseph. And there should be no going back for any of us who say we're Christians. There's no way to undo what his brothers had done to him. No way to undo the lies of Potiphar's wife that caused him to be thrown into prison unjustly. And likewise, we can't stay where we are because life is like a river that flows ever onward. And so the only thing we can and we must do is to go forward in life with God's help and by God's grace. God has taken Joseph through the pit and through the prison, but in the end, he brought Joseph right into the palace. So, as we end this morning, I'm going to ask the worship team just to come up and get ready for our closing song, if you don't mind. Making of godly success in the life of a true believer is God's work in the smallest details of life. It's a daily process. It's never hurried. It's seldom easy. Dr. Howard Hendricks, who's a longtime professor at Dallas Theological Seminary and a speaker for Promise Keepers Men's Ministry, used to say of spiritual growth, everybody wants the product, but nobody wants to go through the process. We need to glorify God in every area of our lives and in every circumstance. We have to cooperate with him. And we have to stop divorcing what we do and we sing about on Sundays from our workplaces and our homes on Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday and so on. There must be no distinction between the secular and the sacred. So that as Paul says in Colossians 3, Christ is all and is in all. And like Joseph, God is with us whether we're in a pit or whether we're in a palace, whether we're in the valley or we're in the mountaintop. We're God's servants as his people. And as such, listen, we are the visible evidence of an invisible God before a watching world. We're living, breathing, walking examples of the Christian faith, or at least we should be. And our pulpits are the everyday environments we find ourselves in. Our congregation is the world. But we must always remember that we worship and witness to an audience of one, to God alone. I'm going to sing our last song in a moment, but I want you just for a few more moments, um, listen reflectively to the words of another song. It's on the video. And, and the words, among the words are these, Oh, let your will be done in me. In your love I will abide. Oh, I long for nothing else as long as you are glorified. Even as you sit here this morning, right where you are, and you're listening to these words and listening to the still small voice of God, who I believe has spoken through this message this morning, I just invite you to respond in any way that God leads you for yourself this morning.